Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. We have Trey Henninger back onto the show. Trey, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Thank you. Glad to get the invite. So what's what's been new since we last connected on here? So I think the big one that's new for me that I want to talk about is Intercom Communications Corp. Okay. They are an audio broadcasting company that specializes in sports radio. And so you have a, a big sports gambling push that they're getting a lot of movement on right now. They also have a big podcasting business. Okay. So they happen to be the number two radio broadcaster in the United States. They own like 230 radio stations, but they also own the second largest podcasting company as one of their subsidiaries. What's the podcasting Uh, company called? They have Pineapple Street Media and Cadence 13. They have tons of partners. They have um, a lot of different podcasts underneath that. So they aren't, it's not like a, a platform company. Like they are like a, a, they're not like a direct Spotify competitor necessarily. Okay. They're more the owners of the actual podcast. So they're not offering anything other, like they're the content owners basically. Got it. So they're making money from the advertising on the, on the show themselves. Yeah. They're making the money on the advertising on the show themselves. And they host it. So what they'll do is is they're, they're a nice interaction because what they've done is in addition to their podcast, just like any other podcast, you can listen to their podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anything like that. Or you can listen on, onto their own networks where they have basically both sides of the deal. Because uh, okay. they have a, a radio.com is their big digital platform. But they, they basically take both sides. But their main push is the content ownership. Okay. Gotcha. It's an interesting one because what's happened with this company is they are priced like a dying radio company, but they have a really large growing digital audio business. And the radio business is still very profitable and has a lot of cash flow properties in it. But the growing digital business is fueling growth that very quickly will overshadow any concerns of a declining radio business. So how'd you you find uh, this? I've been following the company for a few years. It was post around in 2017, 2018, when they actually bought out CBS radio. So they merged with CBS radio. So they're the the business that merged with CBS radio. Yes. They're the business that merged with CBS radio. They, they had before that they owned like a hundred stations and then CBS owned like 150. Okay. So they were the smaller one that bought a large company. They merged. Um, and basically that merger went terribly and has crashed since then. I mean, they, they merged at like $12 a share. And then at, in April of 2020, they bought them at around 80 cents a share. So, I mean, you're talking like 90% stock price drop in the three-year period up until April 2020. And that's basically due to all the debt that was required for that acquisition. Okay. So I get the general thesis. What's the valuation look like? So the valuation is really interesting and it requires some thinking through scenarios here. Okay. So walk Um, me through that. So there's really two cases here. it's, It's in part a binary outcome. Case one is the company goes bankrupt. 
because they have too much debt and they would default on the debt. Now, all is the there is there a is, lot of is, is there a lot of debt on the balance sheet right now? Is, yeah, I mean, is that so a real risk? So that's that's the key here, right? So you have massive leverage. The company has about one point six billion dollars in net debt, okay. and the operating cash flow on a normal basis, like a like a net income type number on a normalized basis is like 100 million. So you're like 16 times like a net income type number on a, on a normal year. But the EBITDA is like 450 million because the interest rate, you know, the interest payments are huge. And so as the debt's paid down, net income and free cash flow skyrockets over time. But what it means is they're leveraged both financially but also operational leverage. So basically, if they increase revenue by 2%, they'll grow earnings by 30%. But it means that if they drop revenue, then their earnings crater. You know, right. So they're double leveraged here. So COVID hit, killed advertising market for a period of time, and their numbers last year looked terrible. The big turn, though, is we've had sequential improvement since Q2 of last year. So as things started opening up, everything's been getting better. And what you have now is every quarter going forward is going to look increasingly better. This is like all good news for the next 12 to 18 months. This is just going to look better and better and better. And so the question is, do they default before you know they show massive profitability? Yeah. And if they do default, you're talking the equity's worth zero, basically. If they don't default, the equity's worth 10, 20, 20 plus dollars a share. Because they're going to start out with like a normalized cash flow around a dollar a share, and that's going to quickly grow to two dollars a share and, and, and beyond. Mm-hmm. Right now, they trade at just below five dollars a share. I think it's like four dollars and sixty-six cents. So if you look through like a PE basis, they're at trading at like four to five times earnings on a normalized operating cash flow. So if they survive, super cheap. And so it just becomes question of will they survive? That's the breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk probabilities. Yeah. In April, it looked pretty likely that they would default. And so now, then I was like, well, you probably have a 20 to 30% chance of default, but they were priced like the d- default was like 90%. The equity went down to, you know, companies trading for less than $100 million and the debt was at 70 cents on the dollar in the, in the debt markets. Well, if you look today, the best way to evaluate what the market thinks about default risk is to look at the debt. The debt's trading above par. So it used to trade at 70 cents on the dollar. Now it's trading at 103 cents on the dollar. So the market of debt holders are telling you the default risk is zero. Well, if the default risk is zero, then the equity is way undervalued. Because what you would have is a company that can pay out almost all its cash, or if it pays down debt, that causes massive bottom line growth because of the leverage components here. Right. And so the big risk here is that you would be in a declining business. But as I just said at the beginning, this we're set up for good news. Every quarter is going to be sequential improvement. Yeah, and, and anything are, that's going to be trading at three to five times, you know, essentially what you believe is normalized earnings is going to come with some hair or some risk. And, yes, you know. yes. And so, but the key here is, is if COVID hadn't hit, you would have already seen all that play out. So like right. there were some mistakes with the merger. They fixed them. They cut costs and it wasn't an issue. They cut $100 million in costs or something like that. But then, of course, the pandemic hit, and it caused over a hundred million dollars in revenue drops. And they Which had to then with leverage even makes it worse, and with leverage makes it worse, and so you got trapped in a problem here. They've then taken another hundred million dollars out of the business because they used COVID as an excuse to lay off workers, 
get even leaner. One of the big pieces here is the insider ownership's like 30%. So the CEO and the chairman is the founder of the company and the founder's son. And they've been buying stock in the open market. So they're putting millions and millions of dollars to work buying in the open market. And they've been buying the whole way down. Like they've run this business for 40 years. So it's an interesting play. It's not like any, like pick a random company where the CEO is there for two or three years. They don't have any skin in the game. They have no stake in it. You know, the CEO is going to fight tooth and nail to avoid default on this business. Right. Like their whole family. And I would would imagine too putting, getting in a perspective, is the debt from uh, bondholders or is it a bank loan or, you know, who actually owns it? So it's mixed. So some of it is on bondholders. Bondholder debt is way more attractive. It's actually the bank debt. They have a term loan that they pay down over time. And so it has some covenants on EBITDA leverage that they need to keep under like four and a half times or something Okay. to avoid default. And they actually in June or July renegotiated the leverage covenants and since, and then it was about a dollar per share then, and it's since then it's been on a run because once they were able to renegotiate it, they basically got, they avoided any check for covenant violations through the entirety of 2020. And then for 2021, they have like a waiver for using 2020's earnings. So basically they said, we'll just look at 2019's results to check you for 2021 plus like whatever quarter in 2021 is to give you time to get back to normal. Right. I mean, that's why I really was asking because it would make sense for a bank to be willing to negotiate there because you, yeah. you wouldn't want them. Especially, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a business with no assets, basically. It's yeah. super light. I mean, what do they own? It's all goodwill for, I mean, a radio station is a tower that you set up and and you license to, to go over the airways. I mean, there's no CapEx in this business. Is there a risk that bondholders would force the company into bankruptcy and then take equity and wipe out the current equity holders? I mean, is that so the bondholders can't, the bondholders don't have the covenant protections that the bank debt has. The, the only covenants that I saw under the bondholders was that if the bank defaults on them, then it triggers a de- default for the bond. Got it. But the trigger is on the bank. Oh, so like, it's pretty it's, low then. Yeah. It's, so it's pretty low because it, what yeah. it does is they, they were able to take out these like 450 million of bonds in before COVID basically. And that reduced the covenants and it excludes the bonds from the covenant. Yeah. So it, management in their most recent Q3 release, which was a couple months ago, I guess, November, um, they sound highly confident default is de minimis risk. I was always skeptical up until the point on debt hit above par. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so there's, I mean, the sophisticated buyers in the room don't think there's any risk here of default. Right. So, well, that's interesting. That's in- yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Well, because it, it's, it's interesting here because you have massive price momentum in the business. You've gone from 80 cents a share to $4 a share. We're at like 450. It was up like 10% today. And I mean, it was just upgraded to like a $7 stock price by Wells Fargo. I have to ask something. What's the short yeah. interest on on the stock? <laughs> Dude, I've been watching it because as we're recording this, of course, it's, I don't know when this is coming out. You know, we've had all this stuff with GameStop. But right, the, as we're um, recording this, it's, it, we're in the middle of the GameStop debacle right now. Yeah, right here. So it's not super high. So what is this? This says a uh, short volume ratio is 15%, 12%. So it's not normal, enormous, but it's not zero. Okay. So, you know, you're maybe a 10, 10%, 10, 12%, but it's something. 
But I don't expect necessarily that would go. But with that said, you have the chance that Redditors could target it. And Who knows, right? I mean, they've been hitting BlackBerry and all, and basically they're targeting businesses that are considered dead. Did so, you I see mean, Blockbuster? Radio, I did see Blockbuster. 5,000% return. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a chance that someone would say, hey, you know what else is dead? Radio. And then, you know, they could combine that with saying this, you know, the stock's on a run. So do you have this outside lottery ticket that it could be one of these types of stocks that could get hit? There's a lottery ticket for sure. But the benefit here is, though, you have all good news as this. I mean, the news is going to keep getting better because they're going to report better quarters, quarter like every quarter. And they've already reported that they expect to be cash flow positive for 2020. Yeah, the like, thesis makes the sense. I think it's very I think it's very simple. I think the thesis makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting. Yeah. I was just gonna ask, would you be willing to give us maybe a little update on Northfield Precision since you did talk about that extensively last sure. time? Sure. Yeah, we can talk we can cover a little Northfield Precision. So Let's Northfield is is let me let me pull up the recent stock price so I can um uh, no, in full disclosure, just, after that episode came out, I've 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 bought more shares since. Yeah. So we're now at now right? I'm I'm so interactive brokers did a thing with me now, which sucks. Actually, really sucks. They block you. They block. I ha, I need I I need to like get permission, and I have a ten day window to buy the stock. Which of course it's so illiquid. It's like almost. And then useless. they block you again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't use interactive brokers because everyone I've talked to that that buys these nano caps gets blocked by them because they they're like, oh my goodness, you bought like a hundred percent of the volume for the day. Right. You must be an insider or something and it's like it's like no there were just only a hundred shares that traded (laughs) so there's not much new on on northfield that i have the performance of the company has gone about as expected but there's not been any major news because basically we get the news once a year when the annual report comes out well it seems Um, like manufacturing was coming out of a um, recession yes and so it i I do follow that i do follow that number Yes. And so I think they're going to have good results. I do know that they were able to pivot very well during COVID to being able, I think, to start providing to uh, hospitals and various people who needed help and prioritizing certain customers, you know, just because it takes time for their production. But I expect they did really well. They were an essential business, but we won't know the the 2020 results until probably May or June. Do they send you the annual report or do you have to request it? So I requested it where I I was on um, a mailing list on it after I requested to be added to that. Okay. Now, with that said, you would get the annual report automatically if you register your share direct directly yeah. with the. Um, Not doing that. <laughs> yeah. So that's one way to do it because then you would automatically get the uh, mailing. But if you ask them, they'll add you to the mailing list and just send it to you. One concern I have with if with Northfield is that there's a chance that the the trading will be restricted on the stock. I think, yeah, with the SEC regulation that came out targeting dark stocks, Northfield is one of those that I think is likely to get hit. So it might have to transition to either an expert market or a gray market. So listeners should be aware of that, and if they're concerned, it's not the stock for them. Yeah, um, and all that means the, is that the impact of that. That S- the new SEC rule. Yeah, so the new SEC rule is not very friendly to retail investors that want to buy darker companies, but they're intending to kind of prevent fraudsters from taking people's money. But it basically says that you need to provide public financials or you can't be traded 
on the OTC markets. And so the definition of public financials is quite stringent if you're a very small company. So you're, you need to be able to report quarterly and annual financials in a specific format on an online interface like the um, SEC Edgar system or through like an OTC markets system where you sign up and pay a fee and meet their standards. You think a lot that of these businesses are going, are going to start reporting because of that? Well, so that's the goal. The stated goal is that, hey, we'll make this a requirement and people will be told you won't be traded unless you meet it. My theory is that it's going to backfire or it's not going to do what they want. Some companies, some small number of companies will say, oh, sure, we'll do that. And that then it met their goal for that portion. But you're going to have the other companies that some companies will just ignore it. They weren't doing much to provide in that way. For some companies, it's too expensive to comply. And so they're going to be moved off the market. That might apply to Northfield. I did let them know of the ruling and they said they were going to look into it to try and, you know, basically ask their lawyers and what they needed to do. Um, I don't have any follow-up on that. So I don't have any inside information on what they're doing or not, but they just said they'd look into it. But there's also the problem that if you're actually trying to defraud investors, you will intentionally not comply because then it makes it easier for you to steal from the company. Totally. Because because now you're not traded. And so if someone wants to sell their shares, they're trapped. And so now you can pilfer the company and you don't report financials and you basically just go disappear into the nether. So I think this sets up a problem where the companies that they're trying to prevent with this are also the companies that are going to refuse to comply and be thrilled that they don't have to be traded. Right. I don't think that applies to NFPC. I don't think Northfield's one of those types of companies because I wouldn't have invested if I didn't think they cared. But I do think it's just expensive for really small companies to comply with that. It doesn't mean if they went to the gray market that you couldn't trade their shares. Now, finding a, a broker willing to let you do it is sometimes hard, but it doesn't mean you can't buy and you can't sell. It just means that you won't be quoted a price. So you won't be able to see what the last trade price is. So right now I can see the last trade price is $22. But if this goes into place in the next six months to a year, you might just see Northfield Precision and the sticker ticker and no trade information, which means you put in your bid, someone else puts in their ask. And if they match up, a trade happens. And if there's no match, nothing happens, but you don't know about it. For experts or for people who are really skilled in the air, it could be a good deal because you could get shares at much cheaper prices than you expect. And if you find um, shareholders, you can see if they're willing to, you know, yes, sell to you. And so for the true Buffett, like early Buffett investors really doing the scuttlebutt and going and finding this stuff, you could make a lot of money if this goes through, or I mean, it's been approved. So when this goes through, digging through these types of stocks, but uh, I don't like it because I, I, I'll i be able to get around it and I'll be able to to leverage it, but I just think it harms the market. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm with you. Well, Trey, this was great. Um, anything else you think super important before we go? Yeah, I think we covered the basics. Like anything, you you know, people need to do their own research, especially on stuff that when part of the sell is, it is a binary outcome. I mean, I wouldn't own the shares of like Intercom if I didn't think the result was going to be positive. Yeah. But anytime you have leverage, there's risk. As we've seen with GameStop the last week or two, anytime you have leverage, there's also lots of opportunity. So. Oh, totally. Now, for people who want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you do, what's the best way to, to reach out to you? 
Best way to reach me is probably through uh, Twitter. You can follow okay. me at Trey Henniger, or you I can follow my, too. yeah, I have a website, uh, DIYinvesting.org. And you can follow me through that. My email is Trey at DIYinvesting.org. I answer questions, anyone interested. And you can also follow my podcast, the DIY Investing Podcast. It's available on all platforms. Mm-hmm. It should be pretty easy to find. And we'll put, you know, send me an email and give me links to any kind of interesting stuff, episodes anything and I'll get it up all in the notes. So it's, you know, a great marketing piece for you. Sounds good. Of course. And for listeners, you know, please like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. And I have a new podcast that came out, the Eric Schlein podcast, which you can literally just go to ericschleinpodcast.com and check that out as well. Also, uh, my book Principles of Power is now on Amazon. I appreciate a lot of you listeners who have been buying the book. That is for sale uh, as well. So Trey, Pleasure to have you on, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to 